Welcome to Diplomacy, the podcast for communications in mergers and acquisitions, brought to you by Corporate Diplomat. With our guests, we will discuss how the financial, economic, political and social context can actually impact the value created by a transaction. My name is Louis de Schallemer and I will be your host. Welcome back to Diplomacy. I'm very pleased to welcome Guy Harles. Guy, thank you for joining us and thank you for taking the time to get us on board. Okay, can thank I you do for this having one? me. I would have loved to do this one in Luxembourgish with you, but maybe that's for next time. <laughs> <laughs> Guy, you are a founding partner of Arne Medenach, the European Law Firm of the Year 2020. And you have been co-chair of the Corporate and M&A Law Committee of the International Bar Association. Can you briefly introduce yourself, auditors? Mm -hmm. With pleasure. Yeah, thank you very much, Louis. And uh, really a pleasure to be with you here this morning. We set up Arnett Middernach, as you correctly mentioned, some 30 years ago. And I am one of uh, the founding partners. This was, I must say, a great story, and we had a lot of fun during all those years. It was not always easy, but uh, let's say we were always uh, confident in the future and, uh, let's say, sure of what we were doing. And I think that what made up a little bit uh, our my story, our story, is that uh, when we set up Arnett Middernach back in 1988, we were a bunch of friends and we had very diverse capabilities and very diverse backgrounds. For me personally, for instance, my dream during my whole life had been to become a CFO. And I must say I completely failed in that mission as uh, after some years working as a financial advisor in the steel industry, I uh, joined Ernest Arendt, who was a sole practitioner at the time, and I took up his firm. And then, as I mentioned, in 1988, we set up uh, Arendt and Medana. As Personally, I had a more, I would say, entrepreneurial background, and I always loved managing. I quite naturally became a little bit the managing partner of the firm uh, right up from the beginning, and I have been in that role for the last 30 years, managing, co-managing, chairing the management committee, and being the chair of the firm. That was up to last year where after 30 years, uh, some younger partners took over as managing partner and as chairman, which means that uh, presently I'm doing my job here as a partner in the corporate M&A team. And I must say it's fun to be back to normal practice again. It uh, liberates you. It gives you a lot of free time where you can do other things. And those other things, obviously, are the IBA, but then also my personal hobbies. I'm growing apples, I'm producing apple juice, and uh, I passed the last weekend just going through my orchards, and it was just fantastic with the sunshine we had. <laughs> Wonderful, Guy. Thank you. There is this saying where you say you have to call the lawyer before, so you don't have to call him or her after. When is the right moment to call a lawyer when you're doing an MA? The right moment probably is very early, but obviously you are asking the question to the wrong person. 
that the earlier the lawyer gets involved, the easier it is for him to get into the deal and to be able to avoid some errors which otherwise may be committed. And uh, I think that is important for the lawyer really to know all the details of the deal. And if you are participating right from the start in the discussions, in the negotiations, it makes it much easier. Some clients have a tendency really to bring in lawyers late. And it may be because what I experienced over the last 30 years is that the role of the general counsel in a company has become less important. And while most deals were driven 30, 40 years ago by the general counsel, they are most likely to be driven today by the CFO. And which means that he will obviously speak to those persons he trusts more and the lawyer will come in late, which in my opinion is uh, not the best thing to do. Obviously, you need the interaction between the financial people, legal staff. So both of them have to work together. And if they wish to work together, obviously, they have to know one another and they have to really be aware of what the other is doing. Just to give you one example, I have a client who does a lot of deal and the client has a tendency and well, what he does as a practice is whenever there is a new deal, he brings everybody together for a social evening somewhere next to his seat or in a city and basically everybody meets, not to discuss the deal, not to discuss the business, but just everybody on his team to know one another. And this favors really the interaction. You may have beer, you may have a glass of wine, you are eating together, you have jokes together. Deal is not discussed. But then the day after, the work really starts. And it gives the team really a kind of cohesion, which is difficult to achieve otherwise. The same client once did deal with a high-tech company, which insisted on everything being done only by emails, nobody speaking to one another. And uh, the uh, interaction was much less good and to some extent, unfortunately, also less civilized. <laughs> is it a question of trust, a trust building exercise in a transaction? Among the team members, definitely. Yeah, no, that's sure. And obviously, when you are working as a team, I think that there are two important prerequisites. The first one, indeed, as you correctly mentioned, you must trust the other people on the team and you can only trust them if you really know them good or you, if you know them reasonably well. The other one, which I always realized on all the deals I have been doing, is that you need clear and good leadership. You need somebody who has a strong hand, who is civilized, as I mentioned earlier. So this does not mean that he needs to be rough because that would even achieve the contrary. But you need somebody who is civilized, who can speak up when things need to be done and who can tell people, well, this has to change or this has to be done this way. For a leader, indeed, they do rely on advisors, lawyers, finance people, environmental analysts. It is a quite complex environment when you have to go through a deal. When you're at the top, where do you make the balance between listening enough to the advisors so that you are aware of what happens and not too much? 
because otherwise you're not a leader anymore. How do you find yeah. the right balance there? Well, they normally tell you that a good leader is somebody who is intelligent and slightly lazy. And uh, I think that's absolutely correct because an intelligent leader will perfectly well understand the problems, but he will be lazy enough not to try to solve the problem himself. And uh, in my experience, that has indeed been the best, uh, let's say, yeah, the best leadership qualities. I love that one. I took that one down. Uh, we'll quote you on that one, if I may. <laughs> you mentioned it earlier. You said that the lawyer needs to come in as early as possible in order to help shaping the direction of the deal, the transaction and, and the different items. We see that in technology today, lawyers try or tend to use and not only lawyers, but M&A practitioners tend to use standardized uh, platforms where you use artificial intelligence to fill in the documents, you know, the SBAs of 500 pages. So we're using a lot of digital elements in order to help and structure the process. Where does the experience and the intelligence of an advisor or a good lawyer fit in? The most important input for the advisor is, and the most gratifying one, is definitely about strategy. You must understand the deal. You must understand what the client is up to. You must understand what the other party wants. And you must be able to tell the client, well, this is the kind of strategy I would adapt, and this is the way I would go forward. And this also means that you are not only there to tell the clients what does, must be done from a procedural point of view, what must be, which documents must be filled in, but you must also be able, as a good advisor, to tell the client, this is a risk, but we should take it. I must say, the world is not risk-free, and everybody knows it. And I have experienced too many lawyers in my life who just were there telling clients, everything which may go wrong. And that's not what the client wants to listen. You, of course, what you hear. You must, of course, tell the client these other risks, but you must also at the same time tell the client, well, basically, this is what we are going to do. This is what we are going to achieve. This is a risk, but we believe that we should take it. And if somebody wants to sue, well, let him sue, and we are going through it. So I must say strategic thinking and uh, advising the clients on which kinds of risks are worth being taken, which one he should take and which one he should not take. That's really where the good NMA lawyer should come in. Mm -hmm. You are teaching, you are an open and an engaged person from what I know you. How do you deal in terms of legal terms between transparency and confidentiality? We see this so often in our environment, in the M&A. I shouldn't tell you, but I have heard that quite often. How can you develop a culture of discretion? Let's put it this way. We came in a company where they had signed 80 NDAs. So 80 people had signed the NDA. Of course, the story was out. How do you deal with that, especially in today's world, where it is so easy to take a picture to record anything and share it right away into social media. How do you see that in your experience? And you have been doing this for the last 30 years. How do you see that now? Well, you have to, I must say, the answer will definitely be twofold. 
First is that there is technology. And uh, what I experience as law firm from all our important clients, we really get a lot of audit missions just to make sure that all our systems are secure, that nobody can break into our system, and that the information we have and which is stored cannot be accessed by third parties. The second part of the answer is that probably the leakage is, let's say, less probable to happen within a law firm than anywhere else. I must say, as a lawyer, you are trained from the beginning of your career to that there is professional secrecy. And uh, I would say it's in our genes that you, when information is given to you, you treat it a confidential way. So confidentiality is something which is there in a law firm is a mentality, but obviously it's also something which uh, must be taught to the young lawyers joining you because the profession changed nevertheless quite a lot over the last uh, 50 years. And uh, law has become much more of a business than what it used to be before. And so it's even more important to tell our young people how important it is to be able just to keep something secret, not to go home and tell your wife, your whomever, was that what you just learned and to make yourself important. It's something which everybody should be aware and which needs to be taught. But technology definitely helps, and it helps in two ways. First, technology helps you really to store information in a confidential way and to make sure that not everybody who shouldn't have access has access. So that's uh, one important thing. And then obviously, and maybe I shouldn't say so, but because of technology, you can also trace back who had access to which kind of information at what time. So people know that if they're going to disclose certain items, other people may check when they knew about information and if there was any chance that it was them who really dispersed the news. It's quite impressive what technology can do nowadays. <laughs> yes, it's frightening. <laughs> it's frightening. In the terms, I think what I like in your answer is, so in the technical aspects, yes, I think there we agree. The cultural aspect is important not only for a law office advising and supporting in a deal, but also for the company or the companies involved in the transaction. Do you help your clients prepare for confidentiality? This goes as simple as, okay, what do you put into your uh, digital agenda when you have a call with the lawyer or when you have the project Neptune call in your agenda? So how do you keep that confidentiality? Because if your team sees that you have all of those calls or whatever, or people coming into your offices, how do you manage that? Or do you have any experience or nice stories on that one? It's difficult. I must say, obviously, when you have certain people coming to your office every day, people within your firm will know that something is going on. And that's exactly where it is important that everybody who comes across those people knows that they really should not speak up. They shouldn't ask any questions and they should not speak up and to tell everybody what they just saw. So there is a point where education really is important. 
If you have something really confidential, obviously, it might be better to meet in a different place at a different places would even be better so that you're not always seen as the same place. You, I must say, you can have a code word which is quite different. You may put in things as private while they are not private as a private event. So I must say there are a number of means, even so in my career, I have never experienced it as a real difficulty. And um, obviously, people may ask questions. I had uh, remember one deal where I had to go and see the client quite frequently. A good friend of mine was working at that uh, place. And obviously, he kept on asking, what are you doing here? Why are you here? And then, yes, you have to tell him a story or something different or just saying, well, listen, sorry, I can't uh, tell you right now. but. Yeah, it might be tricky from time to time. Is part of your job also to make an identification of the relevant stakeholders to when you get into the transaction at an early stage to really see, okay, these are people whom we should talk to at that stage or this is a group of individuals that we should talk to at a later stage. Is that part of your analysis when you get into Definitely. the deal? Yes, definitely. You know, I must say, if you are really working on a confidential deal, it's really uh, absolutely crucial that you keep a list of people who should know and uh, also up from what moment they should know. We mentioned some of the younger kids on board in M&A today. Just very recently, we have seen the SPACs uh, come up there. So the special vehicle for acquisition. Is that a new trend in the financial world? Do you see M&A and the approach to M&A to acquisitions, the entrepreneurial spirit for acquisitions different? Has it become much more a financial world or is the entrepreneurial idea still in M&A today? Well, I would say they are not exclusive. Well, first to come back to your question about the special acquisition company, this is really the big phenomena for the moment. And it has grown wild in the US. I must say that you have everyday new specs coming to the market. Europe is exactly the same. I must say we have quite a large number of specs which are being launched out of Luxembourg, from Luxembourg, some of them also from Amsterdam. So this is really presently it's uh, a la mode, as you would say. So mm -hmm. you have really quite a number of specs which are launched and um, some of them quite successfully recently. So this is a phenomena which we had already 10, 15 years ago because specs are not new. I must say it's something which existed already before, but it has come back very strongly uh, presently. So that is definitely a new phenomena. Then what I must say, you are mentioning entrepreneurs and you are mentioning financial people. I wouldn't say that there is a discrepancy or that there is divergence between the two. I think they are both participants to the same real-world economy. And if you did not have all those private equity operators who are buying companies, trying to get them reorganized, trying to get them on the market, if you had not all those uh, private equity firms being on the buy outside, helping new starts up, basically uh, being able to achieve uh, a new strategy, to have the financial means to develop, to open new shops, to open, to go uh, worldwide web. I must say, these private equity firms really do help the real economy and they 
do help those young entrepreneurs. So I wouldn't say that you have on the one hand, you have the entrepreneurs, on the other hand, you have the financial people. Both of them are working for the same goal. And the entrepreneurs couldn't succeed if the financial people were not there to back them up and to help them with strategy and helping them developing and getting them new ideas, bringing them together with other people. And on the other hand, of course, the financial people could not do the jobs they do if there were not other companies they could help and they could bring, they could bring forward. So I must say both have to work really hand in hand and to de develop our economy together. We have spoken about the acquisition side. You have done a few yourselves. How easy is it to sell? Because <laughs> 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 the buyer and the buyer is always the hero and the buyer is always the one who comes with the cash. But if somebody buys, somebody needs to sell. And sometimes it may be very smart to sell. And sometimes it's a great opportunity to sell. How do you deal with a seller? <laughs> yeah, probably asking the wrong question to the wrong person. I'm much more of a collector than a seller. <laughs> I never succeed selling anything in my life. No, but uh, most seriously, I must say that uh, if you, we do a lot of work, I must say my main work is working with uh, private equity people and uh, its mentality. So they know what they are up to. Emotionally, it's their fun. They are not attached to an individual company. And uh, so they know that they have a mission, that mission will be five years, seven years, eight years, 10 years, whatever. But they know that at the end, they are going to sell the company and uh, that they are going to depart from it. And uh, obviously, as they have their carry, that comes out of the sell. So if you have a good carry and if you made a good profit, that probably helps you being a seller as such. And um, I must say that a senior lawyer in New York once told me, and I think that he, he was perfectly right. He said merchant acquisitions are quite easy. Basically, there are only two things you need to know. When you are going into a deal as a seller, you need to come back with the money. If you go into this deal as a buyer, you need to come back with your shares. It's not more complicated than that. Yes. And, and actually, you are selling your apples or your apple juice. I so do. You are yes. selling something. So you're I'm selling, selling something. something. Definitely. Selling something. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and how do you measure success for M&A? So you just said it. Okay, you have to come back with the money and you have to come back with the shares. Then is that enough to be successful? Is that enough to be sustainably successful? No, I think it definitely is. I think that's what uh, that's the name of the game. And uh, indeed, as a seller, you get need to get the money. As a buyer, you need to get your shares. But uh, obviously, let's say money and shares are not enough. You also want to have a win-win situation. I think that uh, in a good deal, both parties at the end agree that uh, they both got exactly what they wanted. And if you have a deal where one party gets out of the deal and says yes, okay, I sold or I bought, but I do believe that I was tricked into this and I'm not happy with transaction. In the long run, that's a bad thing to have. So yes, and uh, that has always been my philosophy in negotiations as well. There is, you can push things up to a certain point, but you need to understand and you need to know when you should stop pushing. So it's not as easy as that. So if you if you go for a transaction, where you have great strategic advice, where you have a great lawyer, where you have a great financial backing and a great financial plan. Can people still make a deal fail? 
Is it yes. the human aspect that comes in? The human that? aspect comes in. And I have seen a number of deals really fail because one or the other party was pushing too hard. And once again, it should be a win-win situation. And even if you are pushing very hard and if you get it your way, I must say, you always must remember you always meet twice in life. And um, you will always be in a position where you have to do a deal with another person later on. You have a reputation as such. So, yes, be prudent how far you go. How far do you go after the closing? We know that the integration is one of the key opportunities to really leverage the success and the value of a transaction, at least for the buyer. How far have you seen that integration works out and works out on basis of what had been discussed before at the beginning? My experience is that in private equity, let's say most deals go through quite straightforward and that let's say, integration or that acceptance of the deal also by the people within the company is more easily obtainable. Because when a private equity operator comes in by the company, then the people within the company know that one day they will be sold again. Where you might have problems, if you have normally the situation is they have a founding family, they did build up the company or they had the company for a number of generations, and there they come and they sell to a private equity fund. In those circumstances, it's sometimes difficult for the family to understand that its role in the company is diminished if they keep a minority stake and that they have to accept that a new strategy, a new owner is there who is going to do is his way. And there you may have some acronymy in the relationship and you may have some bad feelings. But my experience with the people working within the company, apart from the top management, they normally accept what's going on because they know what's going to come. In trade deals, I have seen more deals or more merchant acquisitions which uh, went wrong. And uh, because there you are going for, you're not going to sell a company only, but you try normally to integrate two companies which have a different history, which have a different background, a different had a different leadership, a different position on the market. And there it uh, gets uh, more difficult because there you need to change the culture of the company more fundamentally. And changing the culture is different. It is very difficult. I remember when I started my career, as I mentioned, in steel industry, they had absorbed 20 years earlier, they had absorbed another steel mill here in Luxembourg. After 20 years, when you just walked the corridors of the company and somebody came along, there was definitely somebody, oh, yes, he is still from that other company. So even after 20 years, people were saying he's from that company and he's from that other company. So I must say that uh, things really, the integration is more difficult than the sale as sell as such. Private equity sells, culture stays the same. Strategy normally stands the same, but in a straight deal where you have to integrate two different cultures, two different companies, that's much more difficult. Yes, I think that is a reality that we have faced as well uh, quite a number of times, uh, absolutely. While it's basically when you have putting apples from two different trees together, it doesn't make the same juice, huh? <laughs> <laughs> Correct. <laughs> Sometimes it makes a better juice. <laughs> 
Okay, Guy, I think we have covered quite a lot this discussion already. I would like to thank you for taking the time for this conversation. What I do remember is that I have to become, well, if I consider that I am lazy, I have to become more intelligent. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think so. Um, You might be the exception, being really intelligent and working hard. And I think uh, what I did like as well in your last answer was indeed the cultural aspects and the challenges of making this integration and the integration work and the difficulty of bringing different identities and feelings together. I don't think that if ever you would have to move into another working environment, you could feel, I think even when you're 120, you would still feel like Arne and Milanach. <laughs> <laughs> Correct. <laughs> it is blood. You are, as a person, also somebody very engaged in culture, in development. You, I read that you love to go to the opera. That's correct. Um, yes, I, I'm prepared. <laughs> <laughs> How do you see the larger environment, sustainability, CSR, relationships with your local stakeholders, with your partners, with NGOs? How important do you see that in, in transactions, in M&A? How does that help you building bridges? If you have a good relationship with the trade unions, if you have a good relationship with authorities, how do you build that and how do you maintain that during a transaction? Well, let's say I have quite an old-fashioned view in that respect. And if I take my civil code, and I agree, I tell you not everybody agrees with me, but if you take the civil, good old civil code, it tells you that a company is there to make money for its shareholders. And I believe that's the ultimate goal, what a company should be there for. And this does not mean that all other items should be forgotten and that money is the only name of the game. I do believe that a company which is wants to be there for the long run must have a good relationship with all its stakeholders. It must be respectful of the environment. It must be socially respectful because this is the only mean for a company to be a good corporate citizen. But not only because the company would be in philanthropy, but because the company wants to make to survive in the long term. And you cannot survive in the long term if you are not a good corporate citizen. And that's exactly what we discussed earlier about uh, culture and about the way negotiations should go on. I must say, if you are in a negotiation for a deal, you must respect the other people. You must respect their culture. They may be different if you are negotiating with somebody from China, from Korea, or from South America. People have different backgrounds, a different culture. In Asia, they tell you, be sure that uh, there is uh, nobody loses his face. And if you are treating with the Middle East, be, well, you should know that on Fridays they don't work. I must say that there are a number of things which you should know and which you should be respectful as such. 
but it should, of course, not be overdone. I must say that uh, these are sometimes cliches as well. And if you are treating with uh, people from China, with people from Korea or South America or the Middle East, at the end, sometimes you realize that they are not so different from what we are. So, yes, culture matters. Be respectful of the others. And um, that will ensure a good deal and probably a long life for your company. <laughs> Wonderful. Thank you, Guy. Um, thank you for joining us. Uh, thank you for joining Diplomacy. Thank you very much. Thank you for joining us for today's episode of Diplomacy. Please explore our website www.corporate-diplomat.com or our LinkedIn page. I hope you have enjoyed. Feel free to subscribe and hit the follow button. Have a great day.